It is a conventional wisdom of politics that foreign policy does not win elections. Voters, the thinking goes, are largely and not unreasonably preoccupied with domestic matters, caring far more about the state of their local schools and hospitals than they might about quarrels in faraway countries between people of whom they know little, as Neville Chamberlain put it. Political history is replete with cautionary tales of leaders who have strutted impressively on the global stage only to come home and be served with notice to quit, as Neville Chamberlain's successor learned. US President Joe Biden would probably prefer to fight this year's presidential election on domestic issues. On Biden's watch, unemployment has reached record lows, real wages have risen, and GDP growth is humming nicely along at near 6%. Added to which, his likely opponent in November is an increasingly erratic demagogue currently on the hook on 91 felony charges who could end up accepting his party's nomination from prison. But events elsewhere are going to intrude on this US presidential election, possibly more than they have in most. Biden finds himself managing America's response to major wars in Europe and the Middle East while hoping there isn't another one in the South China Sea. How much does foreign policy really matter in US presidential elections? Can efforts abroad be turned into votes at home? And how is Joe Biden doing as a foreign policy president? This is The Foreign Desk. I traveled with President Obama during the first campaign for president across the country. And I remember the questions that he was asked by the ordinary American voter in many cases were tougher than questions he was asked by the press. And he was very much asked, how are you going to keep America secure? So I think the notion that no one considers foreign policy when they're making their choice on a decision of president is a misnomer. But it is not the first issue, which is always economics. People who live in you know smaller countries do have the luxury of not thinking a lot about foreign policy. Americans don't have that luxury. They live in a nuclear-armed superpower that leads the most powerful military alliance that the planet's ever seen. That creates different responsibilities. And so if there's a Biden doctrine, it's recognition of that responsibility and simply doing the job anyway, whether anybody, you know, is really thinking about it or not. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, from Washington, D.C. by Johanna Masker, CEO of Global Situation Room and host of the podcast Press Advance. Johanna formerly served as director of Press Advance for President Barack Obama. Johanna is also a News Nation political contributor. Johanna, let's start with the premise of this episode, which is that old political saying that there are no votes in foreign policy. Do you think that's actually true? Yeah, I traveled with President Obama during the first campaign for president across the country. And I remember the questions that he was asked by the ordinary American voter in many cases were tougher than questions he was asked by the press. And he was very much asked, how are you going to keep America secure? At that point, we knew, you know, America had gotten into the Iraq war and there was a lot of sentiment against the Iraq war. I think that actually gave an opening for President Obama because he had been against the Iraq war at the beginning. So I think the notion that no one considers 
foreign policy when they're making their choice on a decision of president is a misnomer. But it is not the first issue, which is always economics. But when you think back to President Obama's experience in particular, if if he did see foreign policy perhaps as a live campaign issue, which of his foreign policy successes, as he saw them, did actually resonate with voters? When he went out to sell himself, what did he pitch? Well, I had just given birth to my son in March of 2012, and five weeks later, I was in Afghanistan with President Obama on the anniversary of the Osama bin Laden death. It was important because we needed to sign a continued deal with the Afghan president, but it was also during a campaign, it was very important to remind the American people that President Obama was the one who got Osama bin Laden. This was a major accomplishment of his. And I'll say my Republican dad even voted for Obama for that reason the second time around. (laughs) I mean, in that sense, though, Obama had the advantage that when he was talking about these foreign policy issues, they obviously impacted the United States in a very direct way. President Biden, looking at the foreign policy challenges he is confronting and will be asked questions about, they are important to the United States, but not directly, not necessarily existentially. If you think about Ukraine, the Middle East and Taiwan, what would be your counsel to President Biden about how you try and turn your activities in those theatres into some sort of electoral advantage? Look, it's about our kids. It's about those young men and women who are going to have to go to war. If we are not smart about Ukraine's defenses and making sure that we have American-made arsenal that's going to Ukraine's defense so that they can defend against Putin, we will get drawn into this by our NATO agreement. So absolutely, you've got to make it about an ordinary American. And Why does Ukraine funding matter? There is a populist movement. And I'll say there are Democrats who have become more populist and Republicans who are very much taking the populist mantle. And it's changed a lot because of Trump. But do you think Biden can still work this subject, foreign policy generally, to his advantage when he's addressing issues which are all extremely complicated and he will likely be running against somebody whose whole thing is telling people it's all extremely simple and I could fix it in a weekend? Biden has always struggled to communicate Mm. from the get-go. I remember working on the Obama campaign at the very beginning when he got added to the ticket. A lot of us were doing his rollouts in Pennsylvania. We were taking him home to Scranton, Pennsylvania to try to, you know, give Obama some creds that he's got some folks who know what they're doing around him. We eventually put someone on the trail to basically monitor what was on the prompter and what Biden was actually saying, because it was so very different. I've thought for a long time, President Biden really believes he's like an FDR character. He knows that we're at this precipice of democracy versus autocracy. And I have thought from the get-go, they should have launched, and you'll laugh, but a podcast of fireside chats that they could truly engage directly with the American people and have a controlled setting where Biden with the stutter and everything can try to explain to the American people what he is doing. Unfortunately, 
I'm afraid the administration in many regards is playing catch up all the time. They came into an administration, you know, trying to get COVID under control in the U.S. They were on the back foot on even just sending tests out and everything like that. Then Afghanistan, they inherited a negotiation that Trump had had with the Taliban unfortunately executed it in a way that just left Americans very frustrated, not least of which when he had an opportunity to explain the images that we were seeing of Afghan people clinging to a United States Air Force jet, he dismissed it instead of saying this shows that the world wants an engaged and strong America And right now, with our divisions, we have not been able to be that strong, engaged America. And that is, at its crux, what Biden was essentially saying in pulling out of Afghanistan. He was saying, we can't control everything. There's going to be debates, especially as the Middle East heats up, on whether that was the right decision. And I don't know that he has a very good answer. And furthermore, in the aftermath, a lot of us, even you know, my co-owner of uh, Global Situation Room, Brett Bruin, was on the National Security Council for Obama, and he called on Jake Sullivan to resign at the very beginning. And Jake did not resign. There have been no changes in administration leadership. And so a lot of those decisions are going to still hang on his head this time around. Biden has a peculiar disadvantage potentially in this campaign as well in that not all the criticism of his foreign policy will be coming from his Republican opposition. He will have to handle large-scale discontent in the Democratic Party about his approach to Israel, especially among young voters, especially among Arab and Muslim American voters. How would you suggest he addresses that? Because there is no way he can please everybody. No, there's not. This is as old as religion, right? Biden is in a very precarious situation because he, like most of us, believe that there is no room for anti-Semitism and that this was a heinous attack and that Israel must survive. And yet no Democrat in recent history has been a fan of Netanyahu and the policies that he has Put forth. I mean, I remember going to Israel with President Obama and Netanyahu rolling us like on every move. You know, we were going to just get out of the plane and there Netanyahu is with camera to surprise him for, you know, off the record chats or whatever he wanted to manipulate in front of the press. Biden's going to be very reluctant to openly criticize Netanyahu, though that's probably what he needs to do for people to understand that he doesn't believe that Netanyahu is all in the right. When it comes down to it, the number of votes that are Muslim votes that are in areas like in Michigan, that we are going to need to get to the polls this time around, it's dangerous because that's about the margin that Biden won by. It was a very small margin. So, you know, if Muslim Americans sit home, it is very dangerous for the Democratic National Committee, for the Democratic Party, and they know that. So what they're going to try to do is get other Democrats out to talk about the issues. And then to the comparison, I mean, it really is Donald Trump is the one who believes in a Muslim ban. He doesn't care. Like, he would be very happy with wiping the Palestinian territory off the map 
and there being a one state solution. And I fundamentally believe that Trump has no interest in seeing a Palestinian state. So what are Muslim Americans then left to do? That's really the question. And it's complicated. Yes, absolutely. But the DNC has been very focused on the numbers and the data of who they need to get to the polls and getting the messages that are going to resonate with those communities to make sure that they know the stakes this election, which are significant. Joanna, thank you. That was Johanna Masker, CEO of Global Situation Room, Inc. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, for a wider look at how foreign policy might be a factor in the US presidential election of 2024. Joining me now from Rhode Island is Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of several books, including Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And joining us from London is Julie Norman, Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at University College London. Julie, first of all, is this going to be really, to any significant extent, a foreign policy election? Yeah, I would say in general, it's rare for U.S. elections to be decided by foreign policy unless we're actively involved in a war. That's not to say things won't matter. Obviously, the war in Gaza right now is mattering to many Democratic voters. Funding for Ukraine is becoming increasingly a political issue. And some so-called like intermestic issues such as immigration, migration, things like that will certainly play a role. But most voters, I think, are going to be voting on domestic issues, whether it's kitchen table issues like the economy or moreover in the election that we'll likely have between Trump and Biden, you know, really casting a vote on those two individuals who we know very well in U.S. politics at this point. Tom, if President Biden did decide he wanted to make any kind of a thing of foreign policy as part of his campaign, does he have much of a record to run on? How would you rate him after nearly one term as a foreign policy president? I think he's been a remarkable foreign policy president under incredibly difficult circumstances. There is a war raging in the middle of Europe. This was NATO's worst nightmare for 50 years. This is something that if these were still times when people understood the world and its dangers a little better than they do now, this would be a five alarm fire. It would be an ongoing national crisis every day. And the Biden administration, I think, has simply handled that with a lot of quiet confidence and has kept the alliance together in the face of probably one of the most dangerous moments since the Cold War. Other than the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which people wanted, you might criticize the bungle of the exit. I certainly did. He gave the American public something they'd been demanding for 20 years. And I would go one step further about how little foreign policy matters. We were involved in two wars over 20 years. And even those didn't really make a dent in most elections at any level. The American public just doesn't care about this stuff the way that they once did. And I think that's unfortunate. There is, I guess, a a divergence there, Julie, between what the American public is interested in. And this is not necessarily a slight on the American electorate. I think most electorates are primarily concerned with domestic issues. But there's a divergence there between what the American electorate's priorities are and what the president's priorities are. Joe Biden himself has estimated that he spent 75 percent of his term working on foreign policy. Do you think Biden is actually, for all the reasons Tom Adams they're unusually overstretched for a US president? Or is this just what the job is actually like? 
I think it's a mix of both. With Biden, I think we have to remember he came up with a very strong foreign policy background even before he was president. He was very involved in foreign policy as a senator. And then obviously in his eight years as vice president for Obama, he was very active globally. So he has a long history of global engagement and especially on some of the issues that came up during his term, especially the war in Ukraine and especially Israel. These were two areas where NATO and support for Israel were kind of two stalwart items for Biden really through his full career. So he really lent into those hard. What I've heard from you know colleagues in Washington is that the board between Israel and Gaza in particular, Biden is extremely personally invested in that, on the phone constantly, made the trip over in October shortly after the Hamas attacks. So there has been a sort of leaning in, I would say, from him on foreign policy issues, maybe even more so than you would have seen from some presidents. But he's also just dealing, I think, reactively with you know, two major crises that we wouldn't have expected when he took office, the war in Ukraine and now the war in the Middle East. Tom, in amid Biden's management of those two crises in particular, Ukraine and Israel and all that has flowed from those, plus, I guess, his drawing down of the American involvement in Afghanistan, do you perceive anything resembling a coherent Biden doctrine? Is there a philosophy of foreign policy underpinning his decisions or is he just scrambling? to react to events? Oh, no, I think that decades on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was exactly the preparation he needed for, I don't think there's a Biden doctrine, but for a very steady continuation of the foundations of American foreign policy that go all the way back to the Cold War. Biden is the centrist inheritor of where the Republicans and centrist Democrats used to be in a relatively bipartisan consensus right up through the 1990s. If there's a Biden doctrine, it's simply to you know maintain America's responsibilities as a global leader and superpower. Andrew, earlier you mentioned that the American public, you know, you can't fault the American public for being less interested in foreign policy. But people who live in, you know, smaller countries do have the luxury of not thinking a lot about foreign policy. Americans don't have that luxury. They live in a nuclear armed superpower that leads the most powerful military alliance that the planet's ever seen. That creates different responsibilities. And so if there's a Biden doctrine, it's recognition of that responsibility and simply doing the job anyway, whether anybody, you know, is really thinking about it or not. I actually think that's a really admirable. I wouldn't call it a doctrine, but I think it's an admirable instinct in this administration to just do the job as thankless as it's become. Julie, what do you think? Is there a a balance as Biden conducts foreign policy between attempting to direct events or merely being happy to manage them? Yeah, you know, I would say when I try and think of the the Bidenism yet, I mean, I'm reminded of the way they they apply this more to their China policy, but I think it applies more broadly, kind of the three C's of, you know, uh, cooperate when we can compete when we should and confront when we must. And I think that's really encapsulated a lot of the foreign policy in the sense that it's not the unbridled global idealism that we saw under Obama. It's not the more interventionist elements that we saw under George W. Bush or even under Clinton, but nor is it the full protectionism, America first elements of of Trump. There's definitely been some carry on of the economic protectionism and and keeping American interests more at the forefront there. 
but definitely leaning into working with allies, multilateralism overseas, and getting involved when the U.S. feels it needs to rather than wherever it can get a foot in. So I think it's been um, somewhat in response to events that are emerging, but I do think the administration went in kind of with that mindset, knowing they need to needed to steer back a little bit from the globalist approach that previous democratic administrations had taken. Tom, do you think anything he has done on the foreign policy front will actually do him any good in this election, at least among that cohort of Americans who do pay attention to foreign policy? You can see that there are some things that he wants to stress. They made a TV spot out of him taking the train to Kiev, and the optics of that were extraordinary. This is the President of the United States visiting an active war zone and not protected and armoured by Air Force One and all that goes along with it. I mean, I'm sure he had people with him, but nevertheless, the man took the train. Did that kind of register with Americans significantly, do you think? I wish it did. And I think with the Americans who pay attention to foreign policy, they were already supportive of what Biden's doing. But to be something of a buzzkill here... I think the answer to your question is no. And in fact, right now, the biggest foreign policy problem that Biden has is that younger Democratic voters are really angry at him for not basically being able to control everything that happens in Israel. I want to talk a bit, though, about what the foreign policy questions in this election might be, because it will at least be discussed in the debates. Julie, how nervous should the rest of the world, perhaps especially Europe, be as they watch this? We now have some idea in this continent of Donald Trump's indifference to it. How high are the stakes? Does it strike you that this is a more serious choice than even it was in 2016? Yeah, I mean, I think that Europe is well aware of what's at stake here. And I think that there's often a tendency to say, perhaps the two men are more aligned on foreign policy, maybe differ more in in style than in substance. You know, people say both are tough on China, both are pretty strong with Israel, these kinds of things. But there are real differences between the two. I think Ukraine as an issue is where we see the biggest divergence policy-wise, obviously. But even on China, even on the Middle East, even on other issues, the fact that Biden really leans into multilateralism, this idea of working with other countries, of shoring up NATO, of shoring up the G7, of working with somewhat new initiatives like AUKUS, like the Quad, that's very different than what Trump will do and has done in the past, where there is much more of a pushback at those international institutions, as well as to international compacts and movements around climate change and the transnational issues. So in terms of what Europe's priorities are, and also the way Europe is used to doing foreign policy and diplomacy. This is a big difference. And Trump is a very different kind of actor and also a somewhat unpredictable actor, as we know from the past. Tom, there's a lot there that we should come back to. But I do want to ask you specifically about the Ukraine question, because that seems to have become not just a point of policy difference between Biden and Trump, but yet another front in America's interminable and inane culture war. And it is extraordinary that it is the Republican Party, which is going soft on the defence of a European country being beleaguered by Russia. I mean, you don't need to be that old to recall a time at which, whatever else you might say of the Republican Party, it would be pretty solid in that situation. First, I think it's important to point out that there are not policy differences between Biden and Trump, because Trump doesn't have policies. Trump is a disordered person who has emotions and hatreds and reflexes and kind of irrational fixations. So I think, you know, we shouldn't fall into the trap of saying, well, 
Biden's policy looks like this and Trump's policy would look like that. Trump, where Ukraine is concerned in particular and where NATO is concerned, Trump has a pathological hatred of Ukraine because he blames Ukraine for all of his troubles. He was impeached over Ukraine. He hates NATO. He hates the whole concept. Remember that the one North Star, the one constant in Trump's foreign policy thinking is an unwavering devotion of Vladimir Putin. All the rest will flow from that. He will almost certainly try to disband NATO. He will definitely abandon Ukraine. So when we think about these issues, we can't think about them in terms of what would a Trump State Department do. It will be stacked with cronies who will do whatever he tells them to. And he has a very emotional engagement with these issues. Now, until recently, the Republicans, you know, were the party of opposing the Kremlin and championing NATO and a strong American uh, multilateral defense of global democracy and trade and cooperation. The, the Republican Party has completely just been captured by Trump for the sake of domestic politics. It's not even the culture war. It's that you have a lot of Republicans who simply like being elected Republicans, and they don't want to face primaries where they could be knocked out by the kind of most extreme, know-nothing, isolationist part of the Republican Party. And that's what Europe will be facing if Trump is elected. And I've said for years, and I, I still say that Trump is an existential threat on several levels. Julie, if Donald Trump is re-elected in November, Europe will not be able to say that it was not warned because we all got a taste of it first time round. But does it strike you that European countries have entirely absorbed the lessons they should have from that first Trump term and that bracing reminder that perhaps the United States can't be taken for granted? At which I'm reminded that I, I did have a quite long conversation with General H.R. McMaster who was Trump's, I think, second national security advisor. It is hard to keep track. And McMaster, who I don't think is any great fan of Trump now, did say that he was not wrong about everything, specifically about the fact that Europe had rather taken the United States for granted for the entire post-World War II period. Well, I do think that Europe is still in a little bit of a stunned deer in the headlights kind of moment with a, a prospect of a, another Trump presidency. I will say a couple of things. One, the U.S. has also been mitigating a bit, and Congress has now passed a motion essentially that makes it very difficult for the president to unilaterally withdraw the U.S. from NATO. So that specific threat, there's at least some guardrails around that. But Trump can still definitely weaken it. I think there was already a push for European states to amp up their military spending, their own security abilities, whatnot. And I think some of that will come to the fore again. You know, and I think there are some states, France and others, who will probably lead on that a little bit more than others. But domestically, that's going to be a hard sell for most European states also to increase their military budgets much more than they already have. And on the economic side, too, I think many European countries are facing the fact that while they haven't always been happy with Bidenomics, so to speak, that had a bit of American protectionism built in. It's definitely a far cry from the 10% tariffs that Trump has threatened and other kind of economic measures that we might see from him. So I think on both those tracks, European governments are, are starting to think ahead and saying, okay, what can we do if this is actually the result? 
Tom, looking at the situation from across the Atlantic, does it strike you that the Europeans are fully prepared for the possibility of a Trump restoration? Because the nightmare scenarios are not difficult to conjure. Trump is re-elected and sometime after he is sworn in, there is some sort of small, semi-deniable incursion by Russian forces into NATO territory somewhere in Eastern Europe and Vladimir Putin basically challenges NATO to fight World War III over a small portion of Latvian forest. I don't think the Europeans are are ready for this, but I don't think the Americans are either. I don't think anybody's really internalized the fact that Donald Trump could return to the White House, especially now with everything we know about him in both, you know, his dictatorial inclinations, but also in everything he's promised to do. I mean, he keeps saying it out loud and I think that there is both in Europe and in the United States, there is a strong normalcy bias that, well, you know, nothing could really be that bad. We got through it once. It's sort of like the guy who drives 300 miles drunk and gets home safely and says, well, what's the big deal? You know, I made it and, you know, I had a few drinks and that's it'll be fine. And I don't think anybody's really grasped the full impact of what that could mean, particularly because this time around, there will be no Rex Tillerson, James Mattis, H.R. McMaster. These were not exactly the greatest champions of the establishment, but they were at least adults who said no to Donald Trump regularly. And that none of those people are going to be around this time. And I, I think people just can't quite get their arms around that. But I do think the one person that has really helped the Europeans to understand this and has done invaluable service in keeping NATO together is Vladimir Putin. Just before we close, and it's a terrible thing to wish more onto the plate of the President of the United States just at the moment, but there is in American presidential years something of an inadvertent tradition known as the October Surprise, the bizarre event occurring in America or somewhere in the world that completely upends everything. I'll ask you each in turn, Julie, you first of all, what kind of thing do you think could even further disturb the trajectory of American politics from its already disturbed point. I guess I just say there's a lot of weird unknowns and different ways this election could go. I mean, obviously, all of Trump's legal situations alone just throw a different kind of factor into the mix than we've ever had before. I don't think it's wrong to say Biden's age and health, you know, it just something could happen to him at some point and something could happen to Trump at some point that I think we're all aware of that, too. And we also have to prepare possibly for a third party run or multiple third, fourth, fifth party runs. But if it is a Biden-Trump matchup, there probably will be others who throw their hat in the ring. And the way that U.S. elections run right now very closely in certain states, that can jolt things in different directions very quickly. So I would say a lot of unpredictability out there at the moment. And yes, I would just say there are known quantities in the sense that we've both been president, but the dynamics of this election are very different than almost anything we've seen before. And Tom, what kind of October surprise would perhaps surprise you least? Well, I agree with Julie. I mean, some kind of health scare, which I actually think at this point is more likely with Trump. He looks terrible lately, and he's under tremendous strain because of his multiple legal challenges. But I also have been wondering if Russia, North Korea, somebody out there says, let's see if we can overwhelm the system. Let's see if we can add one more crisis 
that overwhelms the system and turns Joe Biden into Jimmy Carter. You know, because remember, Jimmy Carter, well, remember if you're old enough, but recall perhaps that, you know, in 1980, Jimmy Carter faced the Soviets invading Afghanistan in December of 79, and then the Iranian hostage crisis. And there may be bad guys out there saying, let's add a few more of those crises to the plate and see if that creates the intended outcome. Because in the end, the bad guys around the world are rooting for a Trump restoration. And I think that's really important to understand. Julie Norman and Tom Nichols, thank you both very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.